Good morning. Today's passage comes to us from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Thank you, Larry. So, um, I want to begin this difficult passage by showing you some advertisements from the 1950s. The chef does everything but cook. That's what wives are for. Doesn't she look happy? How about the next one, Steve? So the harder a wife works, the cuter she looks. Gosh, honey, you seem to thrive on cooking and cleaning and dusting, and I'm all tuckered out by closing time. What's the answer? Vitamins, darling. I always get my vitamins. She's so happy. Wives, look this over carefully and pick out the latest gadgets and cry a little so your husband will feel like he needs to get it. And the husbands, look this out over carefully, pick out what your wife wants, go buy it before she starts to cry. (laughs) Next one. Christmas morning, she'll be happier with a Hoover. (laughs) Every woman's dream, right? (laughs) Thank you, honey. Look how happy she is. Isn't that great? Show her it's a man's world. (laughs) Oh, boy. Yeah, they're, um, they're not going to sell a lot of ties today to any of you, I don't think. Van Heusen ties. Wow. It's a different world, isn't it? You know, we look at that and we do laugh because life is so different today and we think, how strange. But in that time, in the 1950s in the United States, it was after... Rosie the Riveter had had to go to work during World War II and it was considered a great sign of success and prosperity and a privilege for women to be able to stay at home and focus on their houses and their homes. Obviously culture has changed a lot in the last 60 years, hasn't it? Today, a woman who stays at home is made to feel less valuable, less worthy, that there's something wrong with her because she doesn't have a career. Women are living more and more independently of their husbands. They may 
get married for convenience, but they do their own thing. And they don't blend their lives to their husbands. We're taught in our culture that essentially there's no difference between men and women at all. In 60 years, culture's changed a lot, hasn't it? Some of you still think, of course, women's place is in the home. (laughs) Others are offended by those ads because you think, how demeaning to women. And yet at the time, they weren't seen that way. One thing we need to learn from all this is that we are each products of our own particular cultural perspectives aren't we? And let me say this about culture. Culture is always changing, as you can tell from these ads in 60 years. And number two, culture is always wrong. (laughs) There may be elements that are right, but culture always lies to us about what's really valuable and important. And we need to remember that. Because we're products of our culture, that means every one of us has things that we believe that are more culture than biblical. And so we need to begin to think critically so we're not conformed to the world, but that we might be transformed by the renewing of our minds. This helps us see that we really can't trust culture for our views of women and men and marriage. In fact, as believers, we're called to live counterculturally. We need to see what God's timeless truth says and grasp onto that and seek to live that out in our culture. Let it define what our relationships should be like between men and women and respond accordingly. Some of the things the Bible does say about relationships between men and women are way back in Genesis, right? After the fall. Verse 16 of chapter 3 of Genesis. To the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. Scholars know what that means. That desire for your husband means as in her sinfulness, in her fallenness, a woman will want to control the relationship. And yet the husband is given a place of leadership. So there will be conflict and struggle in this area. The Bible makes that very clear. And listen to what Paul says at the end of our passage today. Larry didn't read that far. I didn't ask him to. But in verse 16, the last verse, it says, after talking about all this male-female relationships in worship, he says, If anyone is inclined to be contentious, We have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Why would he say that? Because there's a lot of contention going on in the church in Corinth. They were struggling with the whole issue of male-female relationships within marriage as well. You see, we're God's new creation. The church of God is the kingdom of God come to earth, and God wants us to live out the values of this new creation, being the people of God, which is always countercultural. And God has redeemed us and called us to live apart from the world around us. So what does that look like in our marriages? What does it look like in how we come together 
in worship. That's our passage today. But before we dig into the passage, let me give a quick overview of what we'll be doing in the coming weeks. In 1 Corinthians 11 through 14, these next four chapters, Paul is dealing with the issue of worship. When we come together as the body of Christ, how do we function together? And there were some specific problems going on in the Corinthian church and how they were coming together. And so we will be addressing several of those in the weeks to come. Why is this so important? Why does Paul devote four chapters to this whole area of worship? Well, because I think worship is critical. It's, it's a restoration of creation in a sense, the proper relationship to God, worshiping Him and properly related to one another as it was meant in the very beginning. Worship is our anticipation of the new heavens and the new earth. When we come together to worship Him, it's an anticipation of what Laura prayed a few minutes ago of standing before the throne of giving praise to Him. And worship is our greatest expression of our life together as believers. And when I use the term worship, I don't mean just Sunday morning. I also mean when you worship in small groups, get together to study the Word together and pray together. And any time the community is together, seeking God together, that constitutes worship. And in these chapters, 11 through 14, Paul's message over and over again is this. In our worship, we need to make sure we, number one, glorify God. And number two, that we love one another. Glorify God and love one another. And he will keep coming back to these. Of course, the kind of the central chapter for this whole section is chapter 13, the love chapter, right? And that's kind of the climax of all he wants to say in these chapters. So, how can we glorify God and love one another as we worship together as men and women? That's what we will begin with this morning. So, pray with me. Lord, as we approach this difficult passage and this controversial, contentious topic, we pray that we would let go of culture. And that your spirit would speak to us from your word. We recognize, Lord, that you want women freed up to worship and to be used for your kingdom. We pray that that would be the result of our time together in the word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, this passage that Larry just read about head coverings and headship and all that. Let me, let me kind of set the context here historically. As you already know, I'm sure, the first century was largely a patriarchal society. Okay? It was man-centered. Women, by and large, didn't, weren't given a whole lot of status in either Jewish or Greek or Roman culture, by and large. There were exceptions, but by and large. But here's what happened. Christ came along, and Christ, being countercultural, approached the whole issue of women far differently. He brought value and status to women like had perhaps never been seen before. 
In fact, the church, as it began to live out its faith and be the church of God and respond to who God was together, it was perhaps the one place in ancient culture where women had equal status and equal value to men. Let me say that again because I think that's critical to hear. The church was perhaps the one place in ancient culture where women had equal status and equal value to men. Women in the New Testament, throughout the New Testament, and throughout church history have been valuable contributors and leaders in the early church and all through history. Remember Paul's words in Galatians chapter 3, 28. Some have called Paul chauvinistic, not true at all. Chapter 3, verse 28 of Galatians, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul was teaching that before Christ, standing in his presence before God, there is no difference in value, in status between men and women. And so what was happening in the early church is women were finding incredible freedom to use their gifts, to have an impact, to speak forth. And notice verse 4 and 5 of our passage. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, etc. What I want you to notice right there is that Men were praying and prophesying in the public meetings of the church. But so were women. (laughs) They were praying and prophesying as well. They were exercising their gifts. They were demonstrating leadership in the early church. This was an amazing reflection of God's new kingdom having come to earth. This wonderful freedom that women were experiencing in using their gifts to have an impact for the kingdom of God. So why this chapter? (laughs) Well, because it appears that some women were taking it just a bit too far. They were saying, well, Paul says there's no male or female, so apparently there's no difference at all in men and women. And so in the church, when we come together, these married women were throwing off their veils, their head coverings that were part of the culture. We'll talk about that in a moment, what that meant. And essentially we're saying we're exactly like the men. There is no difference. We're uncovered. They're uncovered. We're the same. And I'm completely independent of my husband. I'm doing my own thing. We're absolutely equal in everything, status, role, etc. Now, some may have been doing this out of rebelliousness, anger. Some may have been doing this out of fear. Some may have been doing this out of woundedness. They'd suffered abuse, were self-protective and saying, no, I will not submit to my husband, I will not submit to any man, and I will not even demonstrate that when we get together and worship. I am completely independent. It's me and God, and that's it. But for whatever reason they were doing it, Paul challenges it. Why? Because Paul knew 
what was best. His heart is for wholeness for both men and women and for us to reflect God's glory in our worship together. So he goes on about head coverings and what is all this about head coverings? Well, let me read a couple of descriptions and explanations that I think explain it better than I could on my own. This is by Doug Goins. He says, except for temple prostitutes and high-class courtesans of wealthy Corinthian men, women tended to wear their hair long, and out in public they wore a scarf or a shawl-like covering over their head. Mistresses or temple prostitutes might shave their heads or wear their hair close-cropped without any covering at all. Across Jewish and Greek and Roman cultures, the head covering was a symbol of sexual purity. And for a married woman, it was a symbol of her loyalty to her husband, of her acceptance of his leadership in the relationship. It would be like the wedding bands that a man and woman wear today. So for a Christian woman in the church to appear in public without that covering, let alone to pray or to share in the word in worship, was both culturally offensive and from Paul's perspective, confusing to non-believers who were trying to understand what this new community of faith stood for in terms of values and relationships. And then Kenneth Bailey, a commentator, says this, For the Christians with a Jewish background, their tradition affirmed that self-respecting women covered their heads in public. The Mishnah, which is the Jewish commentary on the Old Testament, rules that women should be divorced if they uncovered their heads in public. A woman's hair was to be seen only by her husband and the family. The Amish community of North America is a contemporary example of this. And in conservative Islamic countries today, the public head covering of a woman signals to all that she is a respectable woman who has a family that cares. And anyone who harasses, harasses her will face consequences. It is meant to be a form of protection for her. You see, a head covering was a sign not only of sexual purity, but it was also a sign of that essentially I am as a woman taken. <laughs> I'm under my husband's protection and care. So don't mess with me or you'll have to mess with him. <laughs> but to appear in public with an uncovered head was a public statement that you are either a prostitute or somebody's mistress or you are somehow being punished publicly for sexual sin or that you are just completely independent of any leadership in your life. So here's what Paul says. He says, Wives, don't flaunt your freedom in Christ by taking off your head coverings. It goes a little too far and it's confusing to others culturally because of what it represents. This is not the message that God wants you to send about the new community we are in Christ. And he goes on to give four arguments as to why women should not flaunt their freedom in Christ in this way. So let's look at these through this rest of this passage. His first argument for not flaunting your freedom in Christ by removing your head coverings is an argument from theology. Theology. Now, theology is a big word to us, and some of you may be going, oh, what does that mean? 
Theology is pretty simple. Theology is just simply what we know about God and about who we are in relation to God. Theology is simply what we know about God and who we are in relation to God. So this is what he says in his argument from theology, verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. First thing I want you to notice here is the order of what he says. Now, if he was kind of laying out this clear hierarchy, I would expect him to do it this way. God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of the man, and the man's the head of the woman. Notice he doesn't lay it out that order at all. He says, Christ is the head of man, which I think is a warning to man, you're under Christ always. And then he says, and the man's the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ, bracketed about this, around this relationship between the man and his wife, is a picture of who God is. What we know about God within the Trinity himself and how Christ oversees the church. So that's the first thing to notice. The second thing is he says the issue, the theological issue here is headship. What, is it, what does headship mean? Now if you go out and read good, solid, biblical thinkers about what headship is, you'll get a whole variety. Okay, so I'm going to tell you what my understanding is, my best understanding, but I realize there's good Christian thinkers who think differently. Generally, they fall into these categories. Either headship means authority, like he's the head of the company. He's the boss. Or people say, well, headship is source, like that's the head of the river. That's where it begins. That's the source of where it starts. Or some just say, well, head is connected to the body, so it's really just connection. It's just relationship. Well, my response is to say, okay, those are all maybe possible, um, but how does Paul understand it? He's the one who wrote this. What's the authorial intent? What did he mean when he used the word head in this context? Folks, that's just good Bible study. What did the author intend? Because that will help you understand in the end what it means for us today. And if I look at how Paul tends to use this word, he uses it as a picture of leadership. Caring, loving leadership, but leadership. For example, over in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20 it talks about how God raised up Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. So when he uses this metaphor of head, when he's describing Jesus over the church, it's clearly a description of leadership over, being over, being, having some place of responsibility or leadership 
over. Now, think about how Jesus leads, though. How does Jesus exercise leadership as the head of the church? Well, he sacrificed his life for us. He gave up his life for us. And Paul also uses this parallel of the father and the son. Think about their relationship. When Jesus walked on earth, he said, I do everything just exactly as my father tells me. I only do what he says. Jesus learned obedience through the things he suffered. Jesus submitted himself to the father. Not my will, but yours be done. And in the end, even in heaven, it says later in 1 Corinthians, in our exact book here, in chapter 15, describes this in verse 27. Chapter 15, verse 27. For God has put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, the Father, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Isn't that interesting? That's a lot of subjection going on there, right? (laughs) But notice how the Father subjects all things to the Son, but in the end, the Son subjects everything back to him. Philippians chapter 2 says, verse 9 through 11, Therefore, because of Jesus' submissive, obedient heart to go to the cross for us, verse 9 says, Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. What name is that? It's Yahweh. It's his own name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, whether in heaven and earth or under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice the amazing interworking there between the Father and Son of how they submit to one another and they care for one another, but in the end Jesus submits to him and there's this wonderful headship that is glorious and reveals who the Father is in how they love one another and exalt one another. Totally co-equal, the Father and Son. But in the end, the father exercises loving leadership over the son and exalts him, gives him his own name. So Paul draws all that parallel from theology to encourage us to know that when he says the husband is the head of the wife, it's to be a head like Jesus and like the father. A head who exercises loving leadership In the marriage, there is no place, no place for domineering, controlling, abusing, demanding leadership by a husband. That defiles God and dishonors him. Why? Because a husband's headship, leadership, is meant to be a visual picture to all the world of Christ's leadership over the church and God's leadership over over Jesus. Sacrificial, giving, exalting. That's how God gets glorified, see? That's theology. That's, it's meant to be a picture to the world. And so how that gets worked out, you work it out in your relationship, but part of how it gets worked out in my marriage, uh, I look at Jeannie as completely equal 
completely, I, I love her input and her value, and I value her completely equal before God with me. And yet, before God, I feel a responsibility from God to set direction and to make sure that our marriage is focused on the Lord. To keep myself and our marriage submitted to Christ. And so the husband and wife together rule. Together we rule over creation. We fulfill what God's called us to be as husbands and wives. But the husband takes the responsibility to set direction. That's his argument from theology. Now he gives an argument from creation. He says, hey, both men and women were made in the image of God. If you read that closely, he says, a man was made in the image of God and a woman was made for man, from man and for man. Both were made in the image of God, men and women together. Notice Genesis, the creation, 127 and 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The image of God is in male and female together. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion, rule over the fish of the sea, birds of the heavens, over every living thing. It's male and female together who reign over creation. When we're in proper relationship, that reflects who God is and we are reflecting his image to the world. And he goes on to say, because woman was made from man and for man. Remember, it wasn't good for man to be alone. God said, I'll make one to complete him. And so he did. Then man does have a place of Leadership by God's design, creation. This is not cultural. This is part of creation. It's been this way in all marriages since the beginning of time. That's God's design. Again, that, how that works out, it's got to be between the two of you as you seek God together. Notice verse 10. This is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. What does that mean? I have no idea. <laughs> neither does anyone else you read all the scholars and they kind of say I'm not sure my best guess is we're told other places in scripture that the angels are watching us how we live out the faith and they are learning about God from us about God's grace the things that we experience that the angels never get to they learn about God. And as we, in worship together, live in proper relationship, then the angels themselves, the heavenly beings, learn more about God. They're watching to see how we live out our faith. Well, Paul goes on to give another argument, the argument from nature, 13 through 15. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. 
for her hair is given to her for a covering. He says, just look at nature. It's always been this way that it's more natural for women to have long hair, men to have short hair. That's simply more natural. There are exceptions, etc. But he's just saying in nature, that's the way it's always been. And it's interesting that it's still largely that way today, even in our culture that tries so hard to be androgynous, to wipe out all distinctions between men and women. His final argument is from church practice. Verse 16, if anyone's inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. He says this is how all the churches function. There, there needs to be order in the church. So he lays out all these arguments and says this is why women should wear head coverings. Now, obviously, you're not wearing head coverings, women. So we don't take that part of this text to be normative for us today. So how do we apply this? What, how do we make it real to us today? Well, let me just make some suggestions. Head coverings are clearly cultural. They don't have the same meaning for us today. So what is God saying to us today? I think, number one, women, don't flaunt your freedom in Christ by living independently of your husband. Whether it's out of fear or anger or whatever it might be, don't decide, I'm not going to give my husband any leadership over me. I'm going to do my own thing. A woman might do this by simply not wearing her wedding ring because she doesn't want to be connected to her husband. Um, by choosing perhaps to keep a separate bank account. I'm not saying that's always wrong, but often I think it's a sign of, I will not combine with you. I will keep my separate life so I have control over something myself. Perhaps not taking a husband's last name to not be connected with him. Ultimately, it's just doing what you want, no matter what your husband thinks. Being not willing to follow his lead. I think Paul would say that if that's the way you're living as a wife, that that's dishonoring not only to your husband, but to God. Don't do it. Secondly, I think I would apply this text by going back to a couple of verses I skipped that I think are really key and central here. Verse 11 and 12. Nevertheless, in the Lord... In this new community, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. You see, I think we can apply this text by doing what Paul says here, is don't seek to be independent from one another in your marriage, but be interdependent. Be interdependent. I think this is a key application to this passage. It's as men and women live in proper relationship together and we blend our lives properly and we learn to love and support one another well that God is glorified and we reign over creation and we live out the image of God before a watching world. So he says, be interdependent. Don't hold back, but learn to live your lives together. And I would just say, if you're a woman who's single and 
you don't ever want to blend your life with a man like that, then maybe you should stay single. Maybe you should, because otherwise it would be dishonoring to live an independent life. And I think for all of us, by application, I would say this. God wants our worship together to both bring glory to him and reflect our love for one another. To bring glory to him by telling the truth about who God is. And, again, to be a place where we love one another. We tell the truth about who God is through words and by how we live in community. And we love one another in those same ways. And as we all submit to one another and learn to put each other first in our worship, whether here on Sunday mornings or in small groups during the week, God, in the end, will be glorified. And that's what worship is all about. Let's pray. Lord, as we've looked at this difficult passage, you've challenged all of us to see how we need to submit to one another and learn to set aside our rights to love each other, whether we are men or women. I pray for the marriages in our body that we would grow in how we submit to one another and love each other in a way that would greater reflect your image to a watching world. May our community glorify you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.